Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. And on this one, first one of the real offseason, uh, I figured I'd start with some mailbag questions. Begin to see with where all of you are with this team. What's the biggest questions on your mind? Or some of these are just a little more baseball and postseason related. And I got a decent amount, so I'm going to have to split this into two parts because I want to make sure that every topic gets enough time. And I'm going to begin immediately with the first question that comes in from Chris, something that a lot of us are talking about right now. He simply asks, where do you stand on the new playoff format? Obviously, lots of feelings about this right now. Now with all of the top teams out, right, Atlanta, LA, I guess Houston is is still in if, if you consider them a top team, but even them, it, like, it came down the last day or two whether or not they were going to win the division, right? These 100-win powerhouse teams are all out, and of course, Rockies fans are probably a little bit more inclined to think about these long delays, right? This is an interesting conversation going on across all of Major League Baseball. I saw Fangraphs did an interesting study report thing where they essentially suggested that no layoffs don't uh, cause any particular advantage or disadvantage one way or the other. Uh, I always struggle a little bit with analysis like that because what it's saying is that over the course of a long enough period of time, layoffs in general don't necessarily work one way or the other. But any specific layoff for any specific team at any specific given time, again, this is oftentimes my issue with analytics. And those of you who know me know I use the analytics every day. I'm not one of those people, oh, what is a war? Like, no, 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 no. I use them all the time. But I do think one of their sort of general downfalls tends to be taking things completely out of context, painting with the broadest brush possible, right? And I don't think that it, you can either say that, you know, a, a three or a four game delay for a team that has some nicks and injuries and maybe an older, more experienced team that needs to recover and is going to be totally fine without the rhythm is totally different than a seven or eight day delay for a young team playing on all kinds of hype and momentum that doesn't have the experience that if you do stop and slow down and think about it too much, you might realize, oh man, maybe we shouldn't be here. Maybe it's too early for us. Those guys are the Dodgers or those guys are the, you know, the hundred win Orioles this particular season or whatever. That's a little bit of a weird example because they are a, a young team that should <laughs> have all that momentum as well. But again, that's just an example, right? So, I don't think it's the case. I, I did this same thing years and years and years ago. In fact, I think one of the very first big research pieces I did way back at Purple Row was about lineup protection, right? And they had basically used this study and they looked at, you know, guys like Prince Fielder and Miguel Cabrera and, and, and were trying to see whether or not it made a difference, whether or not there were great hitters behind them. But my argument at the time was some guys protection very much matters but for Miguel Cabrera it probably doesn't right he's probably going to be the exact same hitter no matter what we maybe shouldn't use one of the greatest hitters of all time as the example right as the baseline and so I don't know ultimately is the answer to this question whether or not delays have a specific kind of impact but they definitely have an impact 
that's that's the thing that I think needs to be taken from here. It's not necessarily the case that every time a team like the Dodgers has to wait four or five or six days for these wild card rounds to play out. Again, I, I think there are certain teams where if you need the extra rest, if you happen to have experience, that could actually be an advantage for you. I have, however, always been of the opinion that the postseason ought to, as best it possibly can, resemble the regular season. Now, I'll admit here I have a, a particularly strange bias on, on this thing. I'll tell a quick story. When I was in high school, I was a very competitive speech and debate person. That doesn't surprise anybody, right? And I got to nationals in an event called Congress, where most of the time what you did is you would go up and give speeches in front of an entire room of students. Everyone would do this. And at the end of a several hour period, all of the students would vote for who they thought gave the best speeches. And that's how you would win the room or not. I won almost every single room I was ever in. And I ended up going to nationals. And then when I got to nationals, they changed it so that instead of your peers voting for you, it was a panel of judges that voted for you based on your speeches, which I thought was a fundamentally totally different competition. Right. There is a difference between trying to convince your peers to vote for you versus trying to convince adults to vote for you. And whether you're OK with it or not, the fact that there are these long delays now built into the schedule is not the same as the game of baseball, the way it's played the rest of the time or the way that it's been played for the vast majority of its history, which is that you play every day. You play series, which, again, this is part of the problem, and I'll get back to that, because the one-game wild card also had its issue for that reason, not the same way you play the regular season, right? You're supposed to play a series. You're supposed to play every day. If you have a day off, okay, it's just the one, then you play the next day. And for a long time, even the postseason, unless you were between rounds, maybe you'd get two days. And again, sometimes you were a little bit at the mercy of, if another series happened to go long when yours went short, which is what happened to the Rockies in 2007 when they swept the Arizona Diamondbacks, but Cleveland was up big on Boston then and then had to, well, they didn't have to, but they, they, they did end up getting beat in, in the next uh, several games and the Rockies, they had to just wait around for it, right? And I do think, and everybody on that Rockies team and everybody who watched that Rockies team thinks and believes, and I think rightfully so, that the delay hurt them did it cost them the world series would they definitely have won without it there's no way to know that for sure either it's the same thing with these going on today there's no way to know that had it been the old system and the postseason started essentially the next day for baltimore or los angeles or whomever right that they would have run the table or that that's even necessarily a better outcome like it's always funny to me when people will point out regular season totals and be like well this season uh, this team won 107 games and that team only won 91. It's not fair that the 91 team, right? That's the Diamondbacks this year, right? Is, is beating these. I was like, ah, look, that's just how that goes. That's just, that is part of playoffs. That's part of the postseason. That's part of professional sports. Sometimes you get beat by the team that the experts and the record and the statistics and all of those other things say are not as good. That's just part of the game. That said, I do think that Major League Baseball has created a weird and, and complicated situation here because I'm in favor of there being more teams in the postseason. I also think that getting a first round bye does feel like a good incentive 
for the teams that won their division. That That is your way of rewarding teams that won more games during the regular season and making it more difficult on the teams like the Diamondbacks, who were wild card teams that got hot at the end of the season, right? But it does appear to be backfiring on some level. I think having series is, is, is better than having the one game wild card. I think having more teams is better than the fewer teams that we used to have, but it does create this... I don't know what the answer to this question is. And adding even more teams does get to the point where I think you're starting to diminish the quality of the regular season. I know there are a lot of people already on that train. My good friend Mark Knudsen's already like, you're, you're making it like the other sports when now everybody gets to the postseason. And then if we're having multiple rounds, and, and if you say, well, we'll give some kind of advantage, but the, the first seed, right, the Dodgers of this year, they should still play right away because the delay is unfair to them. But then you run the risk of them getting knocked off in the first round by the hot wildcard team. There's no perfect way to do this, right? It is a little bit of a mess. I think ultimately teams are just going to have to get used to this potential delay situation and be okay with the first round by. I do think it's probably the best setup they can have. It's just unusual to a lot of us baseball lifers right now because waiting five days to play your next baseball game is just not the rhythm of the sport, right? But uh, unless you want to stipulate that those teams have to play and you're going to try to give them the easiest opponent possible, which as we've all seen, doesn't necessarily matter sometimes. Just because they won the fewest number of games during the regular season doesn't mean you're going to be able to take them out in a cakewalk. In fact, they might sweep you. So ultimately... I do think there are issues with it, and I have no idea what the solution is. That was a terrible answer to your question, and very long-winded, so thanks. Uh, Like I said, this is why it's going to have to be a two-parter. All right, Jackson asks uh, a pretty great question here uh, about the middle infield, saying what's it going to look like in a couple of years? Shortstop lockdown uh, with Tovar there, and he says, but with Amador and Thompson and Ritter skyrocketing, it feels like Rogers' days could be numbered unless the Rockies deal those prospects for some big-name pitching prospects. And Jackson, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what should happen, whether it's Rogers or one of those prospects. Somewhere down the line, I had several times kind of pinpointed Amador as a potential trade piece just because he's got such prospect hype and I do think the Rockies are pretty well set up the middle especially if they decide they want to go with Rodgers but you know Rodgers has had that injury history they've been freakish they haven't been related but we've also lived through this movie with David Dahl where they were freakish and unrelated but ultimately took their toll and he was never able to become the the player he maybe could have been able to come without them I don't know what the story is going to be on Brendan Rodgers. And so that's probably why for a little while I would wait this out. You know, until one or two of these guys are are knocking down the door, it's not a, quote, problem. That said, if somebody is willing to give you some quality pitching for any of them, that's the type of thing you really do need to jump at. One of the reasons why I was totally okay with the Nolan Jones trade, even though at the time I didn't think Nolan Jones was going to be anywhere close to what he ended up being, was because the prospect that they traded, Juan Brito, who, by the way, has continued to be very good for Cleveland, was also a middle infielder. And the Rockies just have so many of these guys. Now, if they had gotten a pitching version of Nolan Jones, right, if they had gotten a a guy who was a pitcher who had huge stuff but hadn't produced the results yet at the big league level and was 25 and came over and put up a four-win season, right, that would be incredible. That would be an absolute 
boon for this team, and they need something like that. So they should very much be on the phones with everybody in baseball about all of these guys. Uh, I probably wouldn't pull the plug on trading any of those top prospects just yet because, again, you you may need them if it doesn't work out with Rodgers. The future of your middle infield might be Tovar and Amador or... It, you know, if one of these other guys really starts to emerge, then you can start making those uh, choices on Thompson and Ritter. But I would not be at all surprised or in any way upset, despite the fact that they are doing so well uh, in the minors, to see the Rockies trade one of those two guys further down, probably not Amador, for pitching, for, for precisely this reason. Continuing to move out position players of strength, it's something the Rockies didn't do in the past very often, but like I just mentioned, Bill Schmidt has at least done it the one time with Juan Brito. Not quite the same situation, but he, he moved on from Rymel Tapia to get a veteran player who he then moved on to get a younger pitcher. So I think there are a lot of options here for the Rockies, uh, at middle infield, but I fully expect them to start trading position players in general for pitching. They've come out and said publicly many, many times. In fact, this will just get me into the next question. Dominic asked, what are the Rockies' biggest offseason priorities? Pitching, pitching, and more pitching. Primarily starting pitching. If you get a guy who happens to be a reliever, that's fine too. But they just need as many arms as possible. And to not spend it all in one place. Uh, that That's my big thing on, you know, yes, spend money on pitching, which is something the Rockies haven't historically done a ton of, and for good reason. But this offseason, they need to spend, whether it's money or resources, like I was just talking about in terms of prospects or other position players that you can trade in order to get more pitching that is under control for the next four or five years. And you need as many of those guys as is reasonable for you to get into your organization. I don't think that that can turn them into contenders in 2024. Uh, of course, it always depends on the names and, and, and what you look at and who emerges and who doesn't. Uh, there are things every year that you never expect, you never count on. I did not have Nolan Jones becoming a superstar on my bingo card for this year, right? Those are the types of things you never know. If they acquire a pitcher, if they do what I was just fantasizing about a moment ago, I guess, right? Which is pull off another trade where they move out one of these guys who's a really good prospect and who has value and you know all of that. And they bring in a pitching version of Nolan Jones. And then you get Freeland back and Marquez back and Sensatella back. You make a couple of smart free agent signings. You can be right around contention next season. I just don't think that that's all very likely. I think all of those things are more than likely to put you closer to around a 500 ball club next year. But if those pitchers that you are acquiring are under team control, that's the biggest thing. Because they're going to go out and acquire pitching this offseason. I'm telling you right now, just based on what they're saying, the, the, the way Bud Black and Bill Schmidt have talked over the last couple of years, especially at the ends of seasons, they've told us explicitly. They said, we need to get more power. We have some money to spend. We feel like we can be big players in free agency. They went out and signed Chris Bryant. Right now, obviously, he hasn't come in and hit for power, but that's clearly what that was aimed to do. They did what they said they were going to do. Uh, you know, they, they told us that they were going to make these trades at the deadline and then they were going to play the young players for the second half of the season and that's precisely what they did uh, they've they've made it clear on several occasions bill schmidt has jeff bradich never made anything clear he was always playing everything so close to the vest but bill schmidt has at least said here's what we're going to do and then gone out and done it so they're going to get pitching 
the big thing is that it can't be veterans who are making six, seven, eight, ten million dollars a season for the next two years, right? One year, two years. That doesn't help you towards sustained success at all. It probably doesn't even help you at a short-term turnaround, you know, get back into the postseason at, in 2025. Like, that's a long shot even there. So what they need to be doing is acquiring these guys who are either still kind of in arbitration or they're, you know, veterans that they can sign to three or four year longer deals, but not break the bank. None of the top 10, you know, you're not going after Sonny Gray or certainly not Otani where, you know, see how much pitching that's even going to be in the future. But those are not the guys you're going after. Now, I know there are still some people that, that want to be a bit more aggressive on position players. They do need more offense. Make no mistake, the Rockies absolutely need more offense. I am just of the mind that that's likely to come from internal candidates, whether that's improvements from guys like Tovar and Lauris Montero and uh, you know Brenton Doyle, who we're going to talk about next. But if you don't, you know, if you want to push it forward a little bit and there's a bat out there that you like, again, as long as you're moving some other position player to acquire pitching, if you're bringing in another position player, then cool. But right now, the Rockies really just don't need more position players unless they're getting somebody better while also getting some pitching with it. That's that's the only way that it makes any sense to me. So the offseason priorities have to be pitching, pitching, and more pitching. Like I just mentioned, our next question is about Brenton Doyle. And Brad just asked, and I get this question kind of a lot, so I figured I'd do it here, a, a version of this. Essentially, how much does Brenton Doyle need to hit in order to be truly valuable to the team? And, you know, truly valuable is an interesting way to phrase it because as is, as is, with him being one of the worst hitters in the game, I still think Brenton Doyle's valuable to the Rockies. He's a plus value. This is actually bore out a bit in wins above replacement, but not by a lot, right? He's been, he was a barely plus player because of the quality of his defense. I am of the mind that Doyle really only needs to improve a very, very little bit because his defense is so valuable and because it's largely even underrated by all the numbers that love him, which I know sounds ridiculous, but he's doing even more things out there to prevent runs on a day-to-day -day basis. I think those things would be much more obvious and highlighted if the team was winning uh, because there have been, in the second half of the season, there were probably seven or eight ball games that they could have won because of his key defensive play, but then they ultimately lost because the bullpen, bullpen blew it at the very end, right? But if you had a team with a bit more experience, a bit better pitching, where they're in the situation that the key defensive play does win the game, it holds up as the game winner, then he starts to become that much more valuable, right? But I understand everybody wants him to hit. I do think he can get that batting average up over, the, you know, significantly over the 200. He, I think he, he hit like 270 for the final month of the season. I, and I don't think he's going to sustain that, but he's made some changes. He's made some adjustments. 
Uh, he's going to work really hard in the offseason on the swing. Absolutely. I saw him in the second half starting to add the bunt to his game a little bit. I think that's huge. I think he absolutely needs to do that. Uh, whether he's bunting for base hits because of the remarkable speed, or maybe sometimes he'll just be able to you know, move the, the runners over, put some pressure on the defense, but also pulling those guys in because when he makes contact, his, uh, you know, exit velocity high is not the average because he does put some weak balls into play but his highs on exit velocity are pretty darn good i think ultimately doyle should be shooting for a 220 i know that sounds so painfully and ridiculously low but because he's also a double digit home run guy this last season if he can strike out a little bit less take advantage of that power so that he's if he's at 220, but he's hitting you 15 home runs over the course of the season, and then if he can draw some walks. For me, this is the biggest difference. Brenton gets into a lot of 3-2 counts where he then swings at the ball in the dirt or up at his eyes. And if he can start laying off of that here and there, a walk to Brenton Doyle is at times almost as good as a triple. He's been so good at stealing bases and so good at moving around. And then at Coors Field, depending on who's hitting behind him, if you've got a hot hitter in the leadoff spot, maybe you don't even want him to steal the base because a ball in the gap means he's going to score from first easily. So he can be an offensive weapon because of his speed and because of his power, even if the batting average stays under, you know, 230 or whatever. But he's got to bring the on base up. He's got to walk more and he's got to slug. I think that really ultimately is the key. I don't think you're ever looking at a guy who's going to be a top-tier hitter. He's always going to strike out a bit. He's always going to have a low batting average. But if he can get on base a little more, and then when he does make contact, make sure he's making the absolute most out of him, then his defense will have him be a three-plus win player every single year. And that's going to be exciting. All right, last one for part one of the Q&A. Like I said, I got a bunch of these and I want to make sure I get to as many as possible and don't shortchange the questions. And Nate simply asks, what do you think of the Charlie Blackman contract? I'm happy they brought him back, but thought the price was a bit steep. Yeah, I agree. I knew that they were going to bring him back. I assumed it would be one year, six or seven million. It turned out to be one year, 13 million. If you crunch certain numbers like war and dollar per war remember back to our Armand Marquez conversation that's about what Charlie Blackman has been worth the last couple of years he's been on about that two win place uh, pace which is about 12 million dollars of value and so you know it's hard I understand why people look at this and go what an out of touch team spending overspending nobody else would have given him that much money that's not what he's worth on the free agent market 37 38 years old uh, now he did have a good year again he he was i don't think he quite got to two wins in 2023 but he was on that pace he missed most of the middle of the season he's still got a good bat he can still hit ultimately it's not my money and i don't think free agency this offseason. I don't think an extra $6 million in free agency this offseason was what was going to make the difference. As I was just talking about earlier, they need to spread all this stuff out. They shouldn't be spending big on pitching anyway. They should be spending smart on pitching. And most of this should be about building for 2025 and beyond. We'll see if Charlie continues to be a factor there. It looks like they're on kind of a one-year, one-year, one-year thing until his game really starts to decline, and then they'll call it a career. For now... There's a spot for Charlie on the 26-man roster. 
you know, I, I understand people looking at it when they're all healthy and going, well, if you've got Charlie Blackman and you've got Chris Bryant, you know, where is X player? Where's Sean Bouchard going to play? Where's Hunter Goodman going to play? And that's, again, assuming everyone is healthy for 162 games all of next season. Nothing happens in spring training. Nobody gets traded in the offseason, right? Let's, let's not put the cart before the horse with all of those other things. Uh, you've got 26 guys on the roster. Even if you're building toward the future, even if you're dramatically changing and, and shifting toward the era where it's Nolan Jones and Ezekiel Tovar and Brenton Doyle and Lauris Montero and those guys are going to carry you, you can still have Charlie Blackman around. Yes, for all of the things that he brings, all of the intangibles and for his tangibles. He's still a good hitter. Like he, He's still a good hitting teacher. All of the things that he can be for this team. Uh, I agree with the general assessment that I didn't think it was going to be that much, and I probably wouldn't have spent that much money on him, but I kind of laugh a little bit at the notion that this somehow means that the Rockies are going to play Charlie Blackman and Chris Bryant for 162 games next season, and none of the young guys are going to get to play. Like, that just isn't, even if they wanted to do that, I don't see that as being a feasible outcome, right? So, Charlie has, you know, earned his money, he's earned his keep. Uh, ultimately, I don't think it's going to make the difference between the Rockies competing or not competing next season. And then whatever happens after that is a matter for whatever happens after that. We're really just talking about a one-year contract, right? So if he has a huge bounce back year and the Rockies do have a surprise contention season and he's the old man leader on the team with a bunch of young kids and it feels like the Todd and the Toddlers days. Again, that's going to be a great story. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. And guess what? If it goes the other way, the team isn't very good, and Charlie just has his final year, and he's fine, that's okay too. Uh, you know, that's. Uh, I think it's good that these two parties have done right by each other over the years. I understand that a lot of people want to make it into a big negative thing because they're just generally angry at the Rockies right now. But I also hear a lot of stuff with, like when I talk about how great Nolan Jones has been or how great Ezekiel Tovar has been, and I'll see on Twitter somebody will be like, well, cool, but the Rockies are just going to trade them in four or five years anyway because they never stand by their guys. They're not loyal to any of their players, which is, of course, completely the opposite of true. The Rockies are more loyal to their players than most guys. They just happen to be pretty unloyal to Nolan Arenado and Troy Tulowitzki, which has earned them a certain reputation, which I understand. But it was funny that on the day where I was talking up Nolan Jones and getting all of this, Rockies are never going to commit to paying their guys anyway. And then it's announced that Charlie Blackman gets an extension and it's, oh my God, I can't believe the Rockies are paying their guy. Right? As a matter of fact, the Rockies have done really well by Charlie Blackman over the years. And I think it actually speaks to how well they've handled that situation, that he wants to come back here despite the fact that the team just lost 100 games. He could absolutely go out there and say, I want to play for a team I think has a chance to win the World Series and join the Dodgers or whoever, the Cardinals, and reunite with Nolan Arenado. He, he absolutely had all of that in front of him. And he decided he wanted to come back to the Colorado Rockies. And I asked him about that, and he did say it's because he thinks they're building something here with these young players, but also because the team has done right by him. And so it's funny when I hear people argue that it's not, we can't even get excited about guys like Nolan Jones or Ezekiel Tovar because the team's just ultimately going to screw them over anyway. And then I go in and I talk to Charlie Blackman. You go, oh, right. That's not about the team. That's about Nolan and, and Tulo. And I get it. But 
there are instances, in fact, more here than most places, where they do stand by and ultimately pay their guy. And the loyalty might have actually cost them an extra $6 million in this case. But in the grand scheme of things, Charlie Blackman's going to spend his entire career in a Colorado Rockies uniform. That is extremely rare, especially these days. And I think that's pretty cool. So... Thank you all for listening in to this episode of 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. Like I said, stay tuned to the podcast so that you can catch up on the second half of the mailbag. Other than that, I can only ever ask that you continue to be absolutely awesome out there. You know that I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.